talking about the church, the state, the royalty, the rich. These are massive catch-all terms and I am never happy using big catch-all terms because we're all constantly in flux as individuals and as societies, we're constantly changing. So to look back on the past and see it as any less complex and diverse than the present does it a disservice. The people of the past were us, they were just before us. <laughs> and they had all our issues, all our problems, all our complexity, they just had it before us. This is The Way Podcast. The militias needed to have a heads up that I was coming. I personally think they didn't, you know, like in chess. So that's how deep the addiction goes. I've been incarcerated most of my life. Having a conversation with Bill. They've been given no option, either join or die. Snipers, and it was a military. J. Cole came and hung out most of the fire session. I'm standing at the studio glass looking out into the studio. If you want to know more about The Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com. This is Bill with The Way Podcast on FM 91.7, WHUS Doors at the top of the hour. Also on FM 90.3, WRIU, South Kingston at the top of the hour. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Janina Ramirez about her book, Femina, A New History of the Middle Ages Through the Woman Written Out of It. She is a cultural historian, broadcaster, and author based at the University of Oxford. So today, we're going to talk about some of her history. Don't forget to give a five-star rating, like, share the show. Every little bit helps. You can find information at podcasttheway.com. The show's on any streaming platform. Again, any information you need, Podcast the Way. Dot com. I see that you're considered enthusiastic about your work. Why do people <laughs> consider you that? Oh, well, a great question to start with. Um, well, it's I think the reason I've ended up in the sort of work I'm in, uh, being as a public communicator, particularly with with history and the humanities, um, is that yeah, it, it is just coming from a deep place inside me. I am deeply, deeply passionate about this stuff. And I don't have to fake it. When I'm on TV and my eyes are like dishes and I'm shaking with excitement because I'm holding a Anglo-Saxon brooch, that is completely sincere. Um, and, you know, it's funny because my mum has kept all my school reports going right back to nursery and right up to university. And she said every single report the word enthusiastic came up and it used yeah. to drive her mad after a while because she was like, enthusiasm is a good word, but it also means that you're very loud, you're very out of control, you're very passionate. But I think that's what, what makes me um, makes me a good teacher. I think it's what makes me a good presenter and ultimately what makes me a good writer too because I, I cannot contain my passion for these topics. And I think we're past the day of expecting our experts to be dusty, dry men in suits and to give very sort of empirical, factual answers. You, we are, as, as experts in our field, we are here as vehicles to encourage other people to find their own interests and passions in the subject. And if our enthusiasm can, can kind of get that along the way, then that's good. But also I am a university lecturer and there is something to be said for keeping the students on their toes. <laughs> I was notorious when I used to go to lectures for getting really sleepy and having a little nap at the back. But I, I make sure I change my tone of voice. I jump around. I sort of point someone out. Kind of, yeah, get get them all excited about something so that they do not fall asleep. That's ultimately my, my goal. <laughs> I remember there's like a stereotype with history teachers that they were always mm. the fun ones. So you like fit yeah. into that being like a fun teacher that... The oh, it must look be different. To it. it must be different. Yeah, UK history teachers are sort of the dry ones, oh. really. Um, yeah, it was sort of the English and art teachers that were always very flamboyant. I could so, see that. Um, yeah. So weirdly, I actually did English literature at university. Um, I was always going to do history. So, so my backstory is that I'm Polish Irish origin, and um, my grandparents came over after world war my mum's dad was uh, very high up in the polish army he'd been involved in in the defeat at monte cassino and they got invited over to london um and uh, but but they very much kind of went from being the top of the uh, social tree as of officers and generals 
to the living in a one bedroom council flat in South London. And um, in that process, you know, my mum and dad, there was a thing called the 11 plus and the, and the grammar school system, which meant if you pass this exam when you're 11, you could get this amazing education. And then at university level, you could get grants. They would, the government would pay you grants if you were good enough to go to university. So both my parents were bright enough to do this route. And through education, the thing I, I heard since I was very little is, your education raises you up. It can change your life. It can transform your destiny. And and I saw that firsthand. Um, but there was another side to this, which is that my my grandfather's my my grandma, my mum's mum, was his second wife. His first wife had reportedly been killed during a bomb attack in Poland. And what had happened was they were at the family house with all the cousins, aunties, everyone. And a direct bomb hit the house. And oh, he wow. got the, my granddad got the report, everyone is dead. Your wife and your sons and your sister and everyone else, they're all gone. But what had actually happened, this was a time of great chaos, you'll remember, but what had actually happened is the two boys who were seven and nine at the time, they'd survived because their mum had fallen on them. So one of them was um, crippled down one side and the other was damaged down the other. But they both managed to crawl out of the rubble. And the older one, he left his younger brother with a family nearby. And the older one came to England. And he was a young boy and he came and he said, I am the son of an officer. I demand an education. Please send me to school. Please send me to university. And they did. And he got to Oxford to read history. And it was only when he was a grown man that my granddad found out that he had this, this, these sons that had survived. Um, so when I met my uncle's bishop, I was like, you're a hero. You're incredible. You, you know, what did you do? History at Oxford. That's what I want to do. And that was it. The seed was sown. I was like, right, I've got this heroic relative. And that's what he did. But funnily enough, as I say, my passion for history declined as I was studying it at school. Yeah. I think it was because, and this was, is something we could talk about with the book, but I think I just couldn't find myself or stories about people like me in the history books. It was dates, it was battles, it was rich men, and it was, you know, everybody that was much higher up the social ladder than me. So I got more and more bored of it. And then I realized literature, in literature what you get is real human insight. You get insight into the minds and the hearts of what a person is thinking. So it was weird that I then came all the way back round eventually to history, but to a different type of history. Because I think history is changing, <laughs> dare I say. <laughs> and it's also, I feel like in school, they tell you, okay, we're going to talk about this topic today and you got to do that topic, but you want to yeah. learn about like what happened over at this lake, like what happened over here. And you can't do that yeah. or else you'll get a bad grade and they'll drop you out. Exactly. I, I couldn't agree with you more. There's, um, for me, what I find so passionate about engaging with the past isn't about learning the data, passing the exam, you know, getting all your events lined up in a chronology. For me, it's exactly stuff like that. You know, I love landscape archaeology. I love thinking about a place as having periods of history playing out on that, you know, scrap of land, you know, who lived there, why? Um, I like knowing social history. I like knowing about what workers were doing in a particular era, what the, the general living conditions, what my life as a normal, ordinary person would have been like, not what someone in a palace would have been experiencing. Yeah. And, and I love bringing it all together, the art, the archaeology, the literature, the music, the whole idea. I often say this to people, if we tried to describe to someone in a couple of hundred years time, if we could, <laughs> what it's like to be alive in 2023. How would you describe it to someone? Would you just show them the headlines from the newspaper and say, well, on this day, this happened? Or would you play them a piece of music? Would you show them your clothes that you were wearing? Would you um, show them a comic book you were reading or a film that you watched? You know, the, there's so many different ways to understand a moment or a period in time. And I feel like piecing together the evidence in different ways makes it new and fresh and exciting sounds good that's um <laughs> one of my well one of my podcast friends he's got the history forager podcast and the whole reason he's doing the podcast is because he's trying to mark history today through normal people so in the future people can hear his podcast and know what it's like so like i kind exactly. of find that funny but i think that's so relevant yeah that's that's kind of where we're going you know in the, in the uk in particular we've had um a real drive towards social history as as what people are wanting to watch. I mean, yeah, we still get 
most of our documentaries are on Henry VIII and um, World War Two and thing, you know, more recent history, military history. But actually, alongside that, there's this growing fascination for things like um, a street through time, like what happened on this street yeah. across 300 years. What can we get from the archives? What can we get from the people that lived in this house? And and I think actually that's what a lot of people want. They want to be able to connect directly with the past because otherwise it's irrelevant. It seems you know, not off relevance to your daily life. But but I think history, it defines us. And this is actually the kind of big arc in my book is this is not just about me introducing people to women from the past that we should know about, who we should know about because they're amazing and brilliant. It's actually about how we've been lied to over the, the centuries, how we've been manipulated, particularly across from the 18th, 19th and 20th century into identities that have been sort of externally designed for us. So when you look at the Victorian era, when you look at colonialism and imperialism and slavery and this idea of the English man taking his identity and imposing it across the world, and alongside that, the Victorian woman, who is the dutiful housewife, the, the mild, meek lady, um, that is something that was designed. It was something that was an aid to power. And yet we still lean into it. We still find women in, in, in the West, but, but of course across the world, who, who still feel our role is to be the second sex, is to be demure and um, you know, to, to kind of support our male partners and, and not push ourselves forward, not have our voices heard. And what I'm trying to show with this book is that is a recent invention. If we look back to the medieval period and before, what do we find? We find a very, very different uh, set of women and, and also a very different set of men living alongside them who treated them with respect, with honour, did raise them up, did let their voices be heard. So are we going backwards, if anything? You know, it sometimes feels like that. <laughs> yeah. So there's that whole saying, the history is written by the victors. And mm. like you said, uh, rich white guys had the money and they would the ones writing the books and like all the history. So how do you find the real history? How do you find what's not being shown? That is a great question. And that is exactly where what my starting point was. Um, I love that phrase, history is written by the victors. I think it covers so much. Um, it's history is written by the oppressors, the silencers, and history is written by historians. Who holds the quill? Um, you know, who is actually passing down the information down the generations? And each generation's agenda will change what gets passed down to the next generation. So to get it in the end, I, I, I sometimes think of it as an almost Darwinian evolutionary process, whereby you start off with these texts and as time goes on the ones that are most successful to the next generation of people in power are the ones that get copied replicated passed on and the others are ignored forgotten burnt lost and that's there's that sense of you know what do we end up with now and how was it a thousand years ago you know how do we get back there so your question is a really pertinent one how do we find these these lost or excluded voices in the texts well the answer is we really can't in a lot of cases we really can't. It's a fragmentary statement here. It's a lost manuscript that's been hidden away there. It's accidental survival. And it's, you know, these people, these women have managed to survive, possibly like in the case of Julian and Norwich, because later generations of women protected her text and kept it secret. But we can find these women because they are still hidden in plain view. We know they were there. We know that women have always been roughly 50% of the global population. So 50% of the people doing stuff were women. And that's where archaeology comes in. That's where art history comes in. New discoveries, new DNA. I start every chapter with a discovery. Yeah. And it might be a DNA analysis. It might be, um, you know, a, like I said, a lost manuscript. Or it might be that um, a grave has been discovered with finds in it. And it's using new technology combined with the sciences applying that to the humanities and really casting the evidence net beyond just text-based evidence and going back to, to real factual data, stuff we can point at in the landscape and say, this woman was here, this was her name, this is what... It, sometimes we can't even get that. So in the final chapter, for example, we, it, it was a discovery that was just made last year and it's this incredible first attempt at a um 
really thorough DNA database on a black death pit in Spitalfields in London. And it's the first time that this technology has been developed, um, which means we can track things like uh, birthplace origin based on what these people were eating, the density of their bones. We can um, show evidence about their health across their life. Did they do repeated manual labor? Did they incur certain injuries at certain ages? And we can also determine from that, you know, are they uh, being are they born in a European context or as this study very interestingly shows are they Asian or are they African and all of these people are turning up in this black death pit in London and suddenly medieval 14th century London starts to look an awful lot like modern day London <laughs> you know with diversity with people from all over the world from all areas of life but it's only now this is last year that the first of this work is being done and you think we are opening up this opportunity now through through these discoveries to to find more of these lost people and my work is to put the frame on them just say what if what if we look at the history books and say well where are the women and can we find them let's try that out for an experiment um what if we we look at issues of gender and sexuality or we look at issues of race or we look at issues of class or ableism can we do that can we put the frame on oh yes we can because these people have always been there in the past it's just about looking for them and looking for the evidence so it's kind of an exciting time to be a historian <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'd say so and i yeah i kind of had the same image in my head where like people in europe were in europe people in asia asia africa africa and i figured like maybe 1800s once we got you know better tech or globalism yeah. started becoming more of a thing but sort of always been a similar ratio as it's been today it's crazy. The statistics are, at, when I read it, even I, as a medievalist for decades, even I went, no way. And I don't want to give the spoiler alert off because it's the end of the book. Right, <laughs> so I kind of want everyone to read to the very end of the book. But what I will say is it's absolutely shocking, the similarity between 14th century London's demographics and present day London demographics. And um, it blew my mind as well, because I would have said... Even with the amount I know about this period and the amount I've read about it, even I would have conservatively thought it would be predominantly white Europeans and not as much diversity as we have today. But that's the surprise. That's the payoff. So, yeah. And, um, you know, there's so many things that were right that, that came up in the writing of this book that that sort of made me a little angry and then very reflective. So my, the title Femina is, of course, the Latin word for woman. Um, but the reason I picked it is because I was doing some research trying to find, in particular, this medieval mystic, um, female mystic. And what you get, a really, really excellent resource for books that have been lost or burnt or destroyed, are library catalogues. Now, this is nerding out on a huge level. <laughs> this is for sort of your super history nerd. So, so this yeah. isn't even <laughs> this isn't even like reading an actual text. This is literally a set of receipts for what would have once been in a library. But what's so useful about them is many of those things are no longer in the later collections. So if you get one from, say, 1600, and then you look at the same library catalogue in 1700, you could see what's been lost between the two. Oh, okay. And often what's happened is they'll go to the old catalogue and put a line through the title of the book that's been removed or is no longer there. And in some cases, they put a little annotation to say why it's not in the collection anymore. And often this is something like witchcraft or um, heretical. Uh, but there's this one word that popped up, which gave me a shock line through the title so you can't read it and the word feminine which meant written by a woman and that was like okay so in the 17 you know, 1800s these books are not considered worthy of keeping or copying or passing down for this reason that they're written by a woman and I found that really sort of chilling but then then I started to think more about it and think about um what this actually means for us because when I was looking to the suffragettes um so I start the book with Emily Wilding Davidson she's the famous suffragette who died when she ran out into the 1913 derby and tried to tie a suffragette's banner to the king's horse as it was 
you know, pelting down uh, the racetrack. Um, and she she became a martyr for the cause. Her funeral, in fact, is the single most attended non-royal funeral in English history. So mm. she was a mega, mega, mega star. And Emily Wilding Davidson was a medievalist. And nobody sort of mentioned this. This hadn't come up in, in books. There's so many books on her, but nobody sort of draws any attention to this. And it's because I'm a medievalist. I said, hang on, that is really interesting. What's she written? So I started to go back over her articles, over her, her poetry, her, her things that she'd written. She was quite prolific. And she says again and again, as a Edwardian 20th century woman, I want to go back to the medieval period when women had rights. And you sort of think that blows things up a bit because we tend to think our, our rights, the rights that we have today are the result of the last hundred years. But those suffragettes themselves would not have said that at all. They would have said, actually, we want to go back there where they had more rights than we have now. So that became my, my touch paper, if you like. That was the moment where I thought, I'm doing something bigger here. This isn't just you know, 20 medieval women you should know about. This is, this is an argument. This is a thesis. This is something that... I hope will change how we feel like for men and women listening to this, but particularly for women, women, why have we been taught to feel the way we do as women? Why do we feel we are inheriting a tradition where we are secondary? And would we feel differently knowing that simply wasn't the case? Would we be able to shape our present and maybe our future differently by understanding our past better? I think we could. I think it could be empowering. So are you saying that, Back in medieval time, women had a lot of rights equal to men, and then it's at some point fell off, and now we're coming back is what it is? So there were, I would, there's a couple of points in history, places like Knossos, Minoan culture in Crete, in um, the about... 1700 BC where where there was definitely women had the overhand they had it off above men it was a matriarchy women ran everything then you get various points throughout history where the equilibrium is sort of like this but post christianity on the whole men have the greater power and authority and, and that's legally as well as religiously and women are secondary to that on the whole but what we see during particularly the early and high medieval period is that equilibrium tips up and down constantly. So when you look at like 7th century northern England around Whitby, it's women that are setting up the monasteries. It's women that are running the Christian synods. You know, Hilda of Whitby was in charge of the church synod. And um, you know, Bertha of Kent, she's the one that brought Christianity over, not St. Augustine. And then you've got all these different women who are spreading it and investing in the new religion and finding power in it. Because through monasteries, through convents, women could take themselves away from enforced marriage. They could take themselves away from the threat of dying in childbirth. And they could be in these um, places of learning they could be educated. They could live in luxury. You know, these early convents were like palaces and they could sing and they could celebrate and they could sort of be empowered to own land, to manage the estate in ways that they couldn't within a, a lay environment as easily. But then as the book goes on, you start to see, you know, women were doing everything that men were doing. They were trading, they were making vast sums of money, and they were able to divorce under certain conditions. They were able to fight. You know, I tell the story about the Burka warrior woman who, who was um, buried with a full set of armory and a dead mare and a dead stallion at her feet as a, as a sort of leader of the garrison in Burka. And they were, that's the that's the difference, I think, pre-Reformation is just that there were options. It wasn't necessarily that there was equality between the sexes, but there were options. And within those pathways, women could get to the same heights as the greatest men of their time. They could be the rulers. They could be the military elite. They could be the intellectual leaders of their time, the best writers, the best musicians. So there was that potential. There was that Sort of, yeah, it was different. There was just a opportunity that was not denied to to those women. You mentioned Christianity just now. And mm. How did that adjust the culture? How did that affect things? What pre and post, you mean? Sort of yeah. the effect of, on society. Well, and also, really, I, I think you said in chapter one it came back too. Like it was, it was a thing. It went away, and then Christianity really came back once more. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we had that sort of first wave um, with Emperor Constantine, sort of 312 AD, where Roman, um, the Roman state religion becomes Christianity. And so wherever Rome gets to, Christianity gets there too. So that's why we find... You know, some of the earliest surviving Christian artifacts are in England because that was the sort of northernmost point of the Roman Empire. And then we find them down in Syria and we find them across Egypt, wherever the Romans were getting to. Um, and then there's this collapse of Rome, the fall of Rome around 410 AD. They start to pull power back to the core, to, to Italy and to Rome, and then just abandon a lot of their peripheral holdings. And into this space comes indigenous tribes, comes migratory peoples like the Anglo-Saxons and Jutes. So it's a time of great ideological change. Um, but I think in terms of answering your question about what difference does it make, at the very, very beginning, the Christianity has a number of USPs, okay? First USP, eternal life in paradise. I mean, that's, that's a good selling point. Um, that's a good one. Second one, forgiveness from sin. You've done some bad stuff, but... Don't worry, if you, if you confess, you can still get up to that, that paradise, paradise called heaven. And the third one that I think is more abstract, but actually the most important when considering women, is that if we compare what Christianity does to, say, um, the Roman state religious uh, system, in the Roman state religion, you had the temple, and the only person that could go inside the temple were um, the priests, the really top religious representatives or possibly the emperor and their family but otherwise everyone else all the, the normal people were excluded from a lot of the ceremony of the state religion they were on the outside looking in um they didn't have access what christianity says from the off is that the church the body of the faithful is made up of everyone doesn't matter what background you are doesn't matter uh, what class you are. It doesn't matter if you're male or female, poor or rich or healthy or not. You can be part of this body of the faithful and you can partake in the ceremonies and you can be included. And I think that that inclusivity was one of the most um, appealing aspects of Christianity to medieval women. They were like, right, I, it, within this system, I can get some agency. I can be... Eat you considered part of the same body and it's only later we see this very rigid hierarchical arrangement where only men could have positions of power within the church for the for the first few centuries but certainly in northern europe from the sixth to the seventh and eighth century that was much more fluid you have say brill bridget of kildare in ireland who has the equivalent position of an archbishop um incredible amounts of power given to women at that time so yeah it I think the whole point about talking about these terms, the ch I do it all the way through the book, don't I? But it's talking about the church, the state, you know, the royalty, the rich. These are massive catch-all terms. And I am never happy using big catch-all terms because yeah. we're all constantly in flux. As individuals and as societies, we're constantly changing. So to, to look back on the past and see it as any less complex and diverse than the present does it a disservice. The people of the past were us. They were just before us. <laughs> and they had all our issues, all our problems, all our complexity. They just had it before us. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like that slow change, like where you said the church, like the women were being pushed out of the higher powers. I feel like that slow change sort of applies even like today with like a simple example. I feel like the middle class in America is kind of dying because there's like a slow change that like yeah. hu humanly we'd like to get more money so if you're high up more money splits the gap and i feel like yeah. that could be applied to a lot of things no completely and also that idea of um this is why i often uh, a lot of my friends are scientists and medics and um they work definitely in the more sort of um technological side of things than i do but i love to discuss this with them because they are very fixed on empirical truths and facts and data and statistical spreads and probabilities. What is the likelihood? What is the average? What's the mean across this population? Whereas I'm always thinking about those dots, those pins on a graph as being individuals, being unique and totally different individuals. I mean, for example, and this is getting quite personal, but my daughter had meningitis when she was very, very little. 
And she managed to survive. And it was this particular strain of meningitis. And it was a week after she'd made quite a remarkable recovery that the doctor came through with this spreadsheet. And he showed it to me and he went, look, all of those dots down there are people that have died from this particular strand. And that one dot up there, that's your daughter. (laughs) She's the only one we know of that has survived this strand. And I remember thinking, yeah, that's, it's a miracle, but at the same time, it made it reminded me of the value of seeing individuals behind behind data, uh, people behind these broad catch-all terms and these broad um, you know meet, uh, approaches. So, yeah. so when I work with the material of the past, I want to get as close to those people as I can. But again, even if we think about ourselves as human beings, the person I was and the books I wrote ten years ago are not the same as the person I am now or the person I will be in ten years' time. So we are in constant flux, and that's what makes the humanities so rich. It's it's the area where we really do understand the, the full scope of the potential to be human and to be alive, and and that's why I, I love kind of trying to bring these as as much as I can. I will never ever be able to sit down and have a chat with Hildegard of Bingham and find out what's going on in her head at any particular moment. But I can get to her through her work, through her music, through her art, through her her scientific work. And and then I feel like I'm getting closer to a real person. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> History <And> is fun. <laughs> it is. And I want, I could go on for hours and hours talking about sort of like the numbers thing you mentioned where people versus statistics. I seem to cover drugs a lot, that topic. There's just so many topics that worldwide that seem to be problems, but one theme or one quote that seems very true is one death is a tragedy, 100,000 is a statistic. And you see wow. like with like yeah. politics or stuff, you see these big yeah. numbers and it almost gets forgotten because it's like, oh, it's just a big number. We, we've got it today in the UK on the British News. I was thinking exactly that point. Um, there's a very tragic story of a woman that's gone missing under uh, very strange uh, circumstances and she has been lost presumably in a river and people are going crazy and the manpower and the effort and the amount of social media space and the amount of newspaper space over this this woman and then alongside that you've got numbers like 7,000 potentially killed in the Turkish Syrian earthquake and there's a almost a sort of chilling inability to connect with the 7,000 and yet the reason people are pouring their heart out for this one missing woman is because we can identify with them individual to individual, I suppose, you know? Yeah. And this is this is where the human side, and, and I think that sometimes this is where the human side is lost in politics as well. Some politicians will not think about the individual that's being affected by an issue. They will think about a state, a group, um, this X number of voters. And when you take that human level out, when you take that empathy and that human connectivity out, then you can be cold and just you you could be lacking in compassion you know you can make big judgments um so i think it's key to understanding the way the human brain works we it's not our fault we don't mean to to be uh lacking in compassion towards the many thousands and and able to deal with the one um but it's like i you know i say to my kids about the fact they find it so hard to understand climate change and global warming it's too big they just they don't even know where to start but you say to them turn the lights out and put the plastic in the recycling and they're like yep okay that's something i can do that is tangible that is manageable my brain can make sense of these acts but my brain cannot fix the hole in the ozone <laughs> you know so it's this you know in understanding the limitations of human uh, you know, the human imaginative yeah. <laughs> capabilities really isn't it um I but it. I, I think that applies really well to what you're saying about uh, about yeah statistics and drugs and and human stories as well human interest stories that's what people like it's what people want to know about yeah i'm like the kids too where i can't wrap my head around what the big numbers mean i just try to do my part try to make a difference but yeah to bring it to like the people and like some actual people of history well mm-hmm. first off that sets that up is what makes the i must say this name wrong but the bayex tapestry if you know what that Bayo, Bayo, it's French. It's a little town in Normandy called Bayo, Bayo Tapestry. Go on, finish, yeah. finish how you want to say it. <laughs> I do know France is known for having weird writing, so like yeah. like spelling and stuff. But all right, Bayo Tapestry. <laughs> what makes it so unique? 
Oh my gosh. Well, this is again, I think, so the next book I'm writing is about national identities and the, the sort of danger of using history slash legend slash myth to prop up our sense of what a nation is. And um, in a way, the Bayo Tapestry and the story around it is all part of that myth. So it's uh, it was made after what, you know, in English schools you get taught when you can barely speak, which is the date 1066, the Battle of Hastings, um, when the Anglo-Saxon king, Harold Godwinson, uh, was defeated at battle by William the Conqueror of Normandy. And for the next 300 years, England and France were tied intimately together as a single sort of fluid kingdom, a kingdom with fluid boundaries and fluid politics. But the, 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 the channel that separates the two countries was not really a barrier. It was a conduit and people owned land on both sides of the channel and the nobilities could barely distinguish whether they were French, English or, or not. Um, so it was a defining moment in the, I, in the concept of the country and the nation. And 1066 was both a huge victory for the Normans and a huge tragedy for the native um, Anglo-Saxons and English people because all of their property was handed over into Norman hands. Suddenly these megaliths, these castles, these cathedrals, and if you've ever seen a, a Romanesque Norman castle or cathedral, they're like enormous they develop this new way of building columns that means they can go up really high and that it's like it's the architecture of power it's the architecture of authority <laughs> sorry no <problem. laughs> getting overexcited about norman architecture <laughs> <laughs> no problem the uh enthusiasm <laughs> ah it's the enthusiasm stuck in my throat <laughs> Um, yeah, so so not only did the landscape transform, not only was there, there, there these new um, you know, superstructures that were dominating the, the, peop the population, but all the English land ho holdings were put into Norman hands. So the whole population had their land taken away and given over to these these Norman incomers. So you know that is that is a big emotionally scarring event to live through and what then happens is um the normans want to commemorate their great victory their wonderful triumph so they commission this object and it is bill i can't even tell you how astonishing it is until you see it yeah. it is so so long that if you originally it was designed to hang inside the cathedral nave at Bayer. So visualize a massive medieval cathedral nave. This thing, it's it's not wide, it's less than a meter high, okay. but it is long and thin like a piece of cinematic tape. And it wraps all the way around, it would have wrapped all the way around this nave. It is so long. Even where it's exhibited now in Bayer, it, it takes up this whole room and it's sort of in a zigzag. It's displayed in a zigzag so you can walk up and down and look at it. And the only thing I can compare it to is, is cine cinema, filmmaking, because there's no actual breakup between the scenes, but they use framing techniques like trees to divide up the separate scenes but you've got scenes of battle you've got scenes where all the ships are coming over the channel and it looks like the ships are coming out at you as you stand in front of it and that you can literally see that the artists have sort of made these ships move across the tapestry and when they're fighting it becomes even bigger it's like it goes in widescreen because they get rid of the bat the borders and suddenly the borders are full of bodies and coats of armor and body parts and heads and you know the battle and the horses are spilling out into the frames so the, just the artistic techniques on display in this thing are magnificent but it's also so important because it's one of the only medieval textiles to survive and and it has had such a traumatic history it was uh, so the Nazis wanted to seize it during 
um, the occupation of France. And they, the French had, were trying to get it out of Bayeux. And at this point, it had been treated with such disrespect, like in previous generations, it had been used to uh, wrap up munitions on a, tr- on a cart, on an old horse and cart. So it's covered with like horse mark and dirt and oil and it'd been crunched and it'd be scrunched. Yeah. And this thing's like nearly a thousand years old. And then eventually it ends up in the basement at the Louvre and the order comes from um, the SS that they had to get the Bayeux Tapestry out of the Louvre back to Germany. And that in that process, it will then become one of these treasures, these seized treasures of the Nazi state that they were trying to get from all over Europe. And just as they were sending out the order to come and get it, D-Day landings happened and the English had arrived and France was slowly liberated and it was saved. But it has had such a precarious life this object the fact it survives at all is a miracle but what it then tells us is so much about the time it's a document of this period of um war of oppression and it is a very macho event there's hundreds of men and only three women but the three women are so prominent because there's almost a power in their absence from the narrative when they do come in one of them is running away from a burning building, holding the hand of a child. They are victims of war. They are the occupied English people trying to escape. And then you see the Queen, you see Queen Edith, who I I think is quite a good candidate for the actual um, designer and patron of the tapestry. (laughs) And then this enigmatic scene called the Algafu scene, where you have this nun. She's clearly a nun because she's wearing... Um, she's got her head covered and she's wearing monastic garments and she's in this this sort of building frame and this cleric, this priest or monk is bent over in this really weird sort of squatting position and he's broken through the wall of the building and is touching her and she's sort of got her hands up going, no! And already it looks weird and all, all that the inscription says is here, I'll give you and a, and a priest. But down in the margin, the margins are where all the secret kind of meanings are hidden. There's this other guy who is the exact mirror of the priest above. He's in the same position. He's got the same face. But he is completely naked with everything on display. So the suggestion is that the one in the main narrative is kind of a well-known scandal. Something that if you'd been reading the, the God forbid, the papers or the uh, celeb mags of the medieval period of the of the 11th century, you'd have known who these people were. You would have known what this scandal was and you'd have known what it was referring to. But we won't know. What it remains as is an echo of this idea of the man violating the female space, this sort of suggestion of licentiousness, of sexual activity. So... That's all going on in the subtext, but it's it's so frustrating. You get so far with these investigations and then you hit a brick wall and you say, well, we'll at this point, we will never know. We will never know what that scandal was unless some remarkable copy of OK Magazine 1066 appears. We are not going to know <laughs> what it was. Um, so, yeah, that's it's a reminder of the kind of perhaps and maybe aspect of the work that we do. <laughs> so they had their own like year impactful Bill Cosby type of fan that like, we just mm-hmm. won't know about yeah. We just won't know about it. But yeah, we would all recognize it. That's the thing. If we saw those characters, we'd make sense. We'd be like, oh yeah, I know exactly what scandal that refers to. But we can't. Um, but what's been really interesting about looking at the Bayer Tapestry, that's one of the chapters in the book, is, um, I mean, I studied it at primary school. Most kids in, in, in the UK do. And it's always used as a, a sort of a prop, a support for the historical texts. So nobody really looks at it as an artwork, but that's what it is. It is a magnificent artwork. And if you were looking at, say, a a Van Gogh or you were looking at a Monet, you'd think about the artist that made that painting as you were looking at it. But nobody has ever bothered to think about the artists that actually made this thing. It's almost like it was a piece of propaganda that just miraculously appeared and all future scholars can use it as a text. It was made by women and not just any women. It was made by Women whose lands who were occupied, whose family members had been murdered and killed in war, whose have had all their wealth, all their privilege taken away from them, and the uncertainty of living under an occupier, they're the ones putting the stitches in this in this linen. They're the ones stitching the history together. And yeah, they're being overseen by their oppressors, but ha- they are hiding things in there. They are 
they are getting their intention across. And then it becomes quite a subversive object. It becomes quite exciting to think about them being the ones holding the needle. What was some of the messages that they like snuck in? Oh, a lot of been a lot of work has been done on this. Um, again, I think we have to kind of put a little bit of caution into it. But I think the main message that I got thinking about uh, the very, very influential English women that were suppressed after the Norman Conquest, people like Emma, who was married to the Viking King Canute and to Edward the Confessor, uh, these the, this sort of roll call of super powerful and influential women. They are all trying to hold on to their power. They are all trying to hold on to their land. They are trying not to end up losing everything. And I think that what's going on is that this commission, this tapestry, is a big risk on the part of the Normans that they're going to let English women make this thing. But I think it's a plea from the nuns of Barking, this particular convent, to say, listen, we are the best in the world. We do this better than anyone. Invest in us. Invest in us. Don't destroy us. Don't close us down. Don't kill us. Give us your money. Invest in us. So it's like an amazing uh, kind of promotional (laughs) document. (laughs) But then there's sort of subtle references. Like one of of the things is... um, the reason it seems some, quite sympathetic uh, representation for the English is that not w- William of the Conqueror, he is the man, he is the conqueror. He is to be shown as super mega king throughout every image. And he looks the coolest, he's got the best armour, and his horse has the largest appendage, male appendage. Now, the second largest male appendage on the whole of the um, Bear Tapestry is the horse of Harold Godwinson of the English. So what they're saying, the women who are stitching this is, and remember, these are nuns. I love this idea. I was like, a nun couldn't possibly stitch that. But what they're saying with this is, yeah, you know, we know that William is great. We have to accept that now. We're under him. But Harold was really good too. He was really, really good. Our king, our guy, he was he was just a little bit under William. So so there's a lot of this sort of subtle playing with with the details that give us a sense that there's a very kind of sympathetic artistic team at work on this who who feel for the the plight of the English at this point as an oppressed and occupied people. Um, and yet nobody's looked at it like this. Nobody's bothered to kind of go, oh my God, it was made by women, not men. Should we have a think about that? <laughs> I wonder what that tells us if we have a think about that. <laughs> yeah, I want to ask about one of the, well, some of the names that helped create that. But I hope I'm not derailing the conversation, but does this revolve around the story of King Niohead, Neohead at all? Because I saw that was a chapter earlier where it had the theme of somebody who was sort of taken under the king, forced to do the work for them. Does this overlap oh. with that at all? Yeah. Are you talking about the, the bit about, uh, well, so this is the story of Welland the Smith, possibly, or I'm not entirely sure which bit you're you're thinking about. The jeweler, his name was Wayland. Yeah, he was crippled. Tra- yeah, yeah, that him. Yeah, King Niddend. Yeah, yeah. So, oh man, it's such an exciting story. It's the one I tell to my students when I'm trying to get them really excited about uh, early medieval art. Because one of the things about me- medieval art is it's not art for art's sake. It's very rarely paintings, sculpture, and architecture in the way that we would think of an artwork in a gallery today. It's usually functional objects, things that do stuff. Um, some of the best art is in in books, in manuscripts, manuscript illuminations. But it's also, um, when we're thinking about that period of great chaos, like we were talking about earlier, Bill, with the collapse of Rome and the movement of all these people, people migrating, people moving and taking back land and, uh, and you know, being on the move. Their art is so different because it's portable, private, and personal. So the closest thing I think of is when a woman or, you know, or, or a man indeed, or somebody is designing an engagement ring, um, something, a ring that they're gonna keep with them for the rest of their life, an eternity ring, they will labor over that piece because they will carry it with them everywhere. Every time they look at it, they'll be like, that's got meaning for me, I know what this means. And that's the sort of, the scale of art that I tried to, that that survives from this early medieval period, and it is beautiful. It is staggeringly beautiful. So if you saw in that chapter, I showed this thing known as the Sutton Hoo shoulder clasp. There's two of them. They are 
about 10 centimetres across. And they were designed to go on each shoulder with a pin through the middle. And each of the four sections were sewn on to a woolen cape. And then when you pulled the pins out, the cape could fall down. You could take the cape off. But they also give the impression of sort of military insignia, the way they sit on the shoulders. And so just from a distance, you'd be looking at the person wearing this and thinking, oh my God, they're powerful. They're important. They've got solid gold on their shoulders. They are rich. They are worth knowing. Then when you get closer to these objects, what you start to see is um, that they're not just made of gold. They've got garnets and glass set into them. Now, glass stopped being made after the Romans left. So this is imported from Europe. But garnet, the garnet has possibly come from as far as Afghanistan, but certainly from as far as Eastern Europe. So just that material, just that that jewel, if you saw it, you would think this person has continental links. This guy is well connected. He knows people. He has got his connections. Even higher class than what they thought when they saw the gold, like even higher. Bingo, even higher, because this material is even more hard to get hold of. Then you kind of get closer still. And once you start to see it really up close, and at this point, you've got to hope this person isn't going to cut your head off because <laughs> you're getting a little close to this guy. Um, but this, at this point, this is where you start to see the microscopic detail. And each of the little closets, uh, that's the term for the gold frame that holds the garnet in place. The ones on this particular example, the pyramidal sections around the edge, they are about a millimetre wide, each one. Then each stone has been nibbled to sit perfectly inside that cell with no adhesive, no glue whatsoever. And when we think that that shoulder clasp then spent 1,400 years in an acid bath and none of these cells have fallen out, it kind of makes you think, that is staggering craftsmanship. And then the last layer that will really blow your mind, and this is where it blows my students' minds too, is um, each of these closets is about a centimetre wide. So the piece of garnet is cut super, super, super thin and rubbed so that it's transparent so you can see through it. But garnet's quite a dull gemstone. So what these incredible craftspeople of the 7th century came up with was the idea of hammering a piece of gold gold foil to about a quarter of the width of a piece of paper and then stamping it with a checkerboard design. So take a centimetre, draw a 10 by 10 millimetre, uh, 10 by 10 grid into that um, actual centimetre of gold foil. That's small enough. But inside each one millimetre square was another checkerboard. And you can really only see it under a, under a microscope. It's absolutely mind-bending. And these, these craftspeople are doing this with no running water, no electricity. They're having to use the natural light. They're having to fight against the elements. How they do it, and when I went to Garrods, the Royal Jewelers, to ask them how they would go about doing it today if they were to make one, they say that they would cost £100,000. It would be done using modern technology. And to do those gold foils, they'd have to use a laser. That's and what yet I was this thinking. is happening. Like, I need, like, a laser machine. Yeah. And yet they're doing it not without even glasses. You know, that's the other thing we have to think about. Age versus skill. You know, the younger eyes will be more capable of being able to do that sort of detailed work. But the skill required of the craft person comes with age, comes with experience. So, you know, what's happening? Who's doing this detailed work? It's it's absolutely beggar's belief. And this is, again, why I think looking at this period with different eyes, <laughs> going back to eyes, um, and, and trying to think about the stories, the individuals behind these objects brings that world to life. And what we're now starting to see is, as I said earlier, everything that men were able to do, women were doing. The main problem we've had using the archaeological record up until recently is if something seemed like a male object in a grave, that grave was called a male grave. So if there's a sword in there, it's a man's grave. If there's a necklace in there, it's a woman's grave. If it's a craftsperson's tools in there, it's a man's grave because women wouldn't do that. Um, if there's, you know, dress attachings, it's a woman's grave. What has happened in the last handful of years? We're talking like literally about 2019 that this was becoming uh, really, really groundbreaking is we could do DNA analysis on ancient skeletons and we can look for those chromosome patterns, either XY or XX. And as a result, 
all these graves are being regen resexed um female that were assumed to be male so suddenly we have female graves that do have weapons in them we have female skeletons that show cut marks uh, as a result of 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 battle having fought in battle and then healed over and and carried on with with some sort of war warrior training we have women being buried with crafts um, objects and trading objects and weighing scales to to trade to kind of do um international trade so suddenly the, it's blown up everything we're not making assumptions from hundreds and hundreds of years later that that must be a man's grave and that must be a woman's grave we're seeing fluidity and and I think this is so pertinent at this moment in time when we're starting to really open up and talk about the difference between sex and gender is we don't even have a fraction of the information about this individual. So when I was thinking about the Burka warrior, that was always thought to be male. She's buried with this full armory. She was assumed to be male until 2019 and this DNA analysis showed she has two X chromosomes. But how else is she appearing? So, for example, I signal the sort of person I am through the way I wear my hair, through my accessories, you know, piercings, tattoos, through the sort of makeup I wear, certainly through the clothes I wear and the way I behave and the way I speak and, and the way I, I carry myself. You know, all these aspects of identity send out signals to other people around you about how you feel about yourself and how society views you. And we don't have any of that evidence. We literally have a little piece of data on a screen that says 2X chromosomes. But, you know, what? how would this woman have appeared? What would she have seemed like? And, um, and I think what's so fascinating about the Viking world is there is just a ton of evidence for gender fluidity in both ways. So one of the most famous Viking stories, oh, it's a great one. It's about Thor, it's called Thor's Wedding. And Thor, we all know Thor, we've seen Marvel Marvel Universe films yeah. and comics. Um, Thor's a big, burly, beardy dude. But in this particular story, um, Thor has lost his hammer, Mjolnir. It's been taken by this giant. And he knows, Loki finds out that uh, this is where the hammer is. And he says, he goes to the giant and he says, will you give Thor back his hammer? He says, the only reason I'll give him his hammer if I am allowed to be married to the goddess Freya. She's one of the other goddesses in the Germanic pantheon. So Thor and Loki go to Freya and they say to her, will you marry him? Please, please. I really need to get my, my um, hammer back. And she shakes the ground with fury and says categorically, no way. I'm not doing it. So they panic and they're like, right, we're going to have to come up with another plan. So Thor dresses up in Freya's dress, puts on her jewellery and goes to get married, and Loki dresses up as his handmaiden, and they go to get married and pretend that they are Freya. And they get through the whole ceremony, and, and apparently the, the giant's starting to get a bit suspicious because the bride, Freya, has just eaten 12 whole salmon and downed three casks of mead. And, 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 and Loki's going, yeah, but she's hungry. She's had a long journey, you know, and she's a goddess. Let her eat what she wants. It's so funny. And then finally, he hands over Mjolnir as a, as a wedding gift, Thor rips off the clothes, smashes the giant, all is good. But this is something that's just passed off as as perfectly normal. And all the way, it's, it's, it sort of seems so deep within Scandinavian um, Viking culture that, that women could do everything men could do, and men could do everything women could do, because the men were often away for years on trading missions, on, on yeah, different adventures. Women had to do everything. They had to, t to look after the land. They had to protect their family and their, their communities. So they do. And that's what comes through in the art, in the archaeology, in the literature, in the religious framework, that within that society, there was this sort of, yeah, bending it about a bit, bend, you know, playing with identity, playing with notions of identity. And I find that such a modern concept. And yet it was happening a thousand years ago. Um, and there's just so much evidence for it. Once you start to look, it's everywhere. It's on the sort of badges that they're wearing. You've got men in dresses with ponytails and you've got women in full armor with like a sword and a shield. And it's, it's like it's just there and it's always been hidden in plain sight. But we've just got to look for it.
So where do you think was the switch then? Like where I feel like today it's sort of becoming more acceptable again, but I feel like there's still some resistance. Yeah. When did that stop being the norm? What do you say? Oh, great question. Um, I pinned it down. <laughs> dare I say? Um, my my suggestion is that it's already starting in the 14th century. So um, the Crusades don't really help. You've got men away, and 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 then. Post-Black Death, there's sort of a spike in the power and influence of women because, they, again, there's an absence of men. A bit like after World War II, so women are, are doing everything, they're, they're, they're running the fields because there just isn't enough people to do all the jobs. So there's a real sort of peak in women's rights and actually at that point we start to get these incredible uh, anti-misogynist female writers, people like Christine de Pizan. Uh, we've got Joan of Arc coming out as this female warrior. This is um, when... Yeah, he'll, the, the, the rise in female mystics is happening. That is an absolute high point where women have land ownership. Some of the richest people in the country at that point are women with the most land, with the most power, the most authority. So we could kind of see coming up to 1400 as a real high point. And then something massive happens, which is the Reformation. And what is so key to understanding why the Reformation matters is that a lot of the women I cover in this book and a lot of the individuals who got their voices heard were able to do so because they could go into convents or double monasteries or they could choose an alternative pathway which allowed them to have a spiritual authority. So you'll have people like uh, Julian of Norwich, who isn't a nun, but chooses to be become an anchoress and gets walled up in a single room for 30 years. Can you imagine that? So it's like and a 30-year uh, lockdown... <laughs> And then she writes this stunning book, Revelations of Divine Love, which is just, oh, bone-tinglingly beautiful. Um, so there's options. As I was saying earlier, there are all these options. Whether you go into a convent, whether you decide to kind of preach as a lay preacher, whether you go out as a missionary and a mystic, whether you enclose yourself, there are lots and lots of alternatives. But with the Reformation, the convents are closed down. The monks are moved into the church, the hierarchy of the church. They're given jobs as priests. They're given jobs for the boys. The women are given nothing. And Martin Luther coins the phrase, the woman's place is in the home. And it's at that point that we start to see the very clear delineation between the domestic sphere being female and the wide world being male. So it starts around sort of 1500, 1550, and it just gets more and more enforced as it becomes increasingly obvious that to control that 50% of the population is beneficial for those in power. Um, the smaller you can make the demographic of those who are entitled to rights, the more power those few have. So if you can exclude all women, that's 50%, you exclude the poor, you exclude people of different races and backgrounds, and you are making a smaller, smaller, smaller little little sort of pot that the few super powerful and super rich can share between themselves. And so we find ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I hear a lot about that. All these years later, so we find ourselves. It's so weird to think. We just believe we live in this cycle of progress where things are only getting better and the people of the past were ignorant and superstitious and worse than us. But when you really look back and you start to peel away the, the layers of, of fallacy that has been placed on top of this history, you start to get a very different perspective. But I think it's an empowering one. And I think knowing about it gives us that power, gives us that sense to say, well, actually, I want things to be different going forward. Yeah, I understand that. I was going to ask, like, one of my questions was going to be, people say history repeats itself. Like, that could already be the answer, but is there any other way you see it sort of repeating itself today? Yeah, 100%. So I, I was just doing a talk about this just yesterday. Um, I am a medievalist, and I cannot see time as linear. It is not linear. And it's certainly not that idea of standing on the shoulders of giants that we're constantly reaching upwards, constantly getting better, constantly improving. Um, there's a very uh, basic sort of historical methodology, which is sort of Hadlian method that History is like a spiral, like we are making gradual progress. We are going upwards in terms of technology and in terms of um, healthcare and in terms of you know, concern for the rights of the many rather than the few. We are slowly moving upwards. But with each loop, we potentially come back round on ourselves. And sometimes we dip down and go under and then we come back up again. But so I sort of see it as this sort of ever moving spiral that's, uh, so history repeats itself is a really good way of thinking about it because of course it will 
the repetition comes in the spiral. But it is this sense that we're not necessarily always progressing. We're not necessarily always getting better. But we are we are looking backwards to make sense of how we're going forward. So that that cyclical idea is how I try and make sense of it. And I take hope in that because I do think yeah, if you did listen to historians, sometimes we know what's come before. We can give you an idea of what's to come. Just ask. We're here. There's loads of us. Just ask us. <laughs> Sounds good. Just the problem is a lot of people say the opposite. And it's like, oh, don't do yeah. this because history repeats itself. And other people are like, do this or else history will repeat itself. Yes. <laughs> I'm ever the optimist. I'm like, hey, we can make it better. Be fine. <laughs> But I do think there's, you know, it is about this idea that history is is not a redundant subject. We're taught so much nowadays, aren't we, that STEAM and STEM, the, the technologies, the sciences, that's where the money's at. That's where the important stuff's happening. But every subject, history is like the mother of all subjects because every science, every computing, physics, biology, they all have their own history. They've all come from somewhere, those subjects. And we understand them better if we know where they came from. But also... If we don't understand where we've come from, how can we meaningfully move forward? How can we actually progress? So I do think thinking about history as a sort of mother subject gives it, puts it back at the heart of, of, of important, significant study. And we should be paying more attention to it. Sounds good. I think that's a good point to mm. wrap it up. Janina Ramirez, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. It's been fantastic. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. Is there any final message you'd like to tell the audience? I would say that if you think about history as this uh, this boring subject that you were forced to study in school with dates and names and battles, you could be put off from it. But if you want to fall in love with studying the past, bring your own passion to it. Find someone that matters to you. Find the origins of that musical tradition that you like or that instrument or go into a, a particular street and find out what happened there. Go into a local museum, look around, use your eyes, find an object, ask, why is it here? Why does it look this way? And you know, search for the thing that really gets you, that matters to you. And then the importance of the whole discipline will really come into focus and you too can end up a history nut just like me. <laughs> And that was Dr. Janina Ramirez. To find her book, Vemina, you can click a link in the description. If you're tuning in through the radio, I highly recommend you check out the podcast. Helps me grow a lot more. You can find information at podcasttheway.com. Share the show, like, give a five-star rating. Every little bit helps. You can find information at podcasttheway.com. This is FM 91.7, WHUS stores at the top of the hour. Also on FM 90.3, WRIU, South Kingston, at the top of the hour. And as always, deuces. This has been The Way Podcast. If you want to know more about The Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com. Mm-hmm.